0: We're going to pick up tonight. Let me do a quickie review here just to bring us up to speed. If we start here in Antioch, this is Paul's first missionary journey. He's going to leave from Antioch. Remember Acts eleven twenty six, 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They're going to leave from Antioch, and then they're going to travel over to Seleucia. They're going to leave from this port, and they're going to travel over here to the island of Cyprus, Specifically, Salamis. When they get to Salamis, they're going to go into the synagogue and they're going to preach. Anytime there's a synagogue, that's where they go first. They're going to leave Salamis and they're going to go to Paphos, which is the other side of the island. When they get there, this is where Paul encounters Sergius Paulus. He is a high ranking government official who is interested in obeying the gospel, but he's under the influence of this huckster who is named, or Jesus, or Ellimus. And this is when Paul ends up striking him blind. They're going to leave here, and they're going to travel to Perga. When they get to Perga, this is when John Mark is going to turn back and leave them. That's very important because when we get to chapter 15, this is what the fight between Paul and Barnabas is over, is John leaving them. So they're going to leave here. They're going to go to Antioch of Pisidia. When they get to Antioch of Pisidia, Almost the whole city turns out to hear them speak. And what happens is the Jewish leaders are going to become envious. And Paul and Barnabas are going to rebuke the Jewish leaders. As a result of that, the Jewish leaders are going to stir up the people, stir up the city, and they're going to physically throw them out of the city. And then the Bible says that Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet. What does that mean when you shake the dust off your feet? Yeah, we're moving on, we're done with you, we're not going to keep your dirt on our feet. And so, then they move on from there, and they're going to go from Antioch of Pisidia, and they're going to come to Lystra. And this is where we are tonight, the first square here, and this is Lystra. Uh, Well, first, actually, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. First, they're going to come to Iconium. When they get to Iconium, a lot of people are going to believe the gospel. Verse 2 says, the unbelieving Jews poison their minds against them. So when they start to have results and people start to believe, the Jews go in there and they poison the people. Verse number 4 of chapter 14 says, the city was divided. Part of them sided with the Jews. Part of them sided with the apostles. Verse 5 says, the Jews started up a plot to kill them. And so then they're going to go to Lystra. That is our first square here. When they get to Lystra, they're going to meet a crippled man there. He's been crippled his whole life. They're going to heal this man, and after they heal him, the people there are just astounded. Now, keep in mind, Lystra is a Gentile city. They worship false gods, and so this is the background that they're coming from. Paul and Barnabas come and they heal a man. What's going to be going on in the mind of people who are heathens and who worship false gods when they see a miracle take place? Let's pick up at chapter 14 and verse 11. David? Let's see. Um, Do you have a mic? Okay. Is it on? Okay, I couldn't hear it. Okay, all right, Uh, start over if you don't mind.
1: All the way back to 11. Yeah, to 11. (laughs) Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men.
0: Okay, what does that mean? When they saw what was done, they said the gods have come down upon us in the likeness of men. What are they saying? What's that? They think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. The God of heaven? That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking that there's some of these heathen gods. Look at verse 12.
1: Yep. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. All right, I want you to look at this. Barnabas they called
0: Zeus and Paul, they called Hermes. Oops, I might have gotten those reversed there. Uh, I had had Paul and Barnabas on the wrong side. So look at the, don't look at the bottom part. But Zeus and Hermes, they thought that these two were gods. Now, if you look at Barnabas and you see the statue over to the side, this was the typical type of statue or idol of Zeus that they would worship. Zeus was the chief god. You can see down at the bottom here, we've got a picture of Zeus, uh, of what uh, someone's depiction of him would have looked like. On this side, we've got Paul, and he was Hermes. This was the Greek god of eloquence. He was an orator. He was a communicator. And so, for whatever reason, they identified Barnabas as being Zeus. They said, This chief God, it must have looked as if Barnabas was the leader. And since Paul was the primary speaker, they said he must be the order. He must be the God of eloquence. And so, in their minds, why would they draw this conclusion? What had Barnabas and Paul done that would even remotely cause them to believe that they they were these two fake deities? What's that? Okay, they'd done a miracle. But why would they link them to these guys? Paul and Barnabas hadn't said anything about Zeus or Hermes. Okay, they were unlearned. And where were they coming from? Okay, they are coming from their background and what they know. And it occurred to me when I was studying this, Anytime you begin to study or talk to someone, you've got to think about the background that they're coming from, and you've got to think about what's in their mind. Paul and Barnabas haven't said anything about Zeus or Hermes, but that's where their minds go because that's what they know. That's what they've been taught. I remember having a study with the fellow one time, and we must have studied for an hour on the subject of baptism. And I went through all of the verses, and he was nodding his head and agreeing, and I thought, man, this is great. This guy is just being persuaded. And we got to the end of the study, and I found out the whole time, in his mind, every time we read a verse that said baptism, he was thinking baptism in the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking baptism in water. But see, he'd been taught you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So he's approaching it from the knowledge that he had, and the background that he had. So though we were reading the same verses, we were coming away with something completely different. And so these guys, they see a miracle, they automatically try to link it to what they know, and that is Barnabas is Zeus, Paul is Hermes. And of course, um, they had a temple to Zeus that was right there in their town in Lystra, and so naturally that's where your mind's going to go the one that they worship. They're thinking, we worship this man, we make sacrifices to this man God, and then we see someone come and perform a miracle? Who is it? That's the God that we worship, the one we make sacrifices to. All right, verse 13.
1: Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes.
0: All right, immediately the um, priest who services Zeus's temple, he goes to work. And he gets busy, he's bringing sacrifices, he thinks this is Zeus, he's in the flesh, we need, he gets the
1: garlands, he's getting ready to sacrifice. Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out.
0: Okay, let me uh, make one point here. It says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, We talked about this a few chapters ago, but was Barnabas an apostle? Okay, in one sense. Um, I always have to run through the apostle song. Do you remember learning the apostle song when you were a kid? Jesus called them one by one, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. When you go through the song, Barnabas isn't in the song. Barnabas is not one of the apostles. The word apostle is a generic word that simply means one who is called, he is, or one who is sent. And so, he has been sent out on a missionary journey. There's a lot of words in the New Testament that have generic meanings, such as an elder. There is a sense in which the, el, the word elder means an older man, but then there is the office of an elder. There is the word deacon, which simply means a servant, but then there is the office of a deacon. An apostle simply means one who is sent, but there, that's the generic meaning, but it is also specifically referring to those who were commissioned. And so you got to keep those things straight or you come to some erroneous conclusions. So when those who were sent on this mission trip, Paul and Barnabas, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran among the multitude crying out. This is the only time I can think of that you ever see the apostles do this. When they just tear their clothes, why are they doing that? Why would they start tearing their clothes like this? Okay, repentance would involve that. Sometimes they would tear clothes. It's a sign of, this is terrible. This is grief. This is something I object to strongly. And so when they did this, this was to exhibit very strong reaction And what they were saying is, no, no, you cannot call us gods. This is highly objectionable to them. I want you to think about this. Do you remember, let's see, yeah, I made a chart for this. Think about Cornelius. Here's Acts 10 and verse 25. Do you remember Peter comes in, Cornelius met him, Cornelius falls down at Peter's feet, the Bible says, and he worshipped him, but Peter lifted him up and said, stand up, I myself am a man. That is, though he was an apostle, he said, don't you worship me. Why would Peter say, don't worship me? You remember in Matthew chapter 4, the temptations of Jesus, one of the things that Satan tried to get Jesus to do, he said, fall down and worship me. And Jesus responded and said what? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve Who is the only one who is to be worshipped? Only God. Only God is to be worshipped. Now watch this because it's interesting. Cornelius falls down and worships Peter. How do you feel if you know only God is to be worshipped and somebody falls down to worship you? How does that make you feel? Get up. Get up. I don't want that. Get up. You don't want someone calling you God. Remember what happened to... um, Uh, Herod in Acts 12, because they're saying he's a God and and he's good with that. You don't want that. So Peter says, I'm a man. Don't you do this. Now look at Revelation 22, 8, the next one here. This is an angel. Now I, John, the Apostle John, saw and I heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant. John is getting a vision in the book of Revelation from an angel, and he falls down, this angel that God has sent, and he tries to worship this angel, and the angel says, no, 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 don't you worship me. Why? I'm your fellow servant. Remember what Jesus said? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, him only shalt thou serve. You can't worship a man, not even if it's an apostle. You can't worship an angel. Now, look at um, Matthew 8, verses 1 and 2. And when he had come down from the mountain, that is Jesus, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and bowed the knee and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Jesus doesn't say get up. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 no. Look at Hebrews 1 and verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So a man worships Jesus, he accepts it. Hebrews 1 says, let the angels worship him. John 9 and verse 38, then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus accepted worship. What does that say to you? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus himself said that. We've got three verses here that say it's okay to worship him. He accepted worship. What does that say to you about Jesus? He he is God in the flesh. He was God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. Now you might say, well, everybody knows that. Who in the world does not accept that? Is there anybody that doesn't accept that? Okay. Well, atheists, I didn't think of that, but yeah, atheists don't accept that. That'd be true. Who else doesn't accept that?
1: Muslim.
0: Who's that? Okay, well, let's not get that personal. <laughs> okay. Okay. There are people. What about religious entities? Which religious entities do not accept that Jesus is God? Okay, Okay. Muslims would be one. What What about the Jews? Yes, how about the Jews? They reject that Jesus is deity. They never accepted Him as the Son of God. In fact, that's the main beef we're going to see in the New Testament. Did you know the Jehovah's Witnesses? do not believe that Jesus is God. This is highly, highly objectionable and offensive to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so they've written their own translation of the Bible. It is called, um, it slipped my mind. What is it? New World Translation. The New World Translation, anytime it refers to Jesus as God, they've changed the translation. For instance, John 1 and verse 1 in the beginning was, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, they've changed it so that it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, lowercase a. They changed it. Why? Because it said Jesus was God. That is highly objectionable. They say that Jesus is Michael the archangel. He's an angel, not God. Don't call him God. Why? Because of this same idea. It would be like calling an apostle God. It would be like worshiping an angel. And they would put him on that level. And so that would be a blasphemous thing to do. But what you see in the New Testament is Jesus accepted worship. But here, you've got Paul and you've got Barnabas. And they're trying to worship him. He will have none of it. Interestingly, what do you see when people come to the Pope? Yeah, they fall down and and they worship him, and he is known as the vicar of Christ. He is taking the place of God on the earth. And so it's okay for people to fall down and worship him. You don't see that with with Paul. You don't see that with the apostles in the New Testament. That is not acceptable. In fact, they ripped
1: their clothes, and they said, we will have none of that. All right, verse 15. And saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Okay. They said, why are you doing this? We're just men like you are. We're just
0: human beings. Don't worship us. We did a miracle, but they didn't take credit for that miracle. It is interesting because any time that the apostles would uh, go and preach to the Jews, They would go to the synagogue. How did they always begin their sermons or their preaching? What's that? Okay, they always began with men and brethren. And then what did they tell? How did they enter into their lesson? They always went back to Jewish history, didn't they? They always went back and they told the story about Abraham and then they told about the captivity. Go back and read. Uh, Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is stoned and looks to heaven. That's what he does. Every single time, that's how they begin. And they preach it. Why would they do that with the Jews? Because the Jews already know the law. They already know about God. And they're just establishing from the Old Testament how to get to the point we're at. When they go and preach to Gentiles, completely different. They don't go back and say anything about Abraham. Why would you not mention Abraham to the Gentiles? They don't know who Abraham is. Who in the world is Abraham? They're not going to talk about the law or Moses or the captivity. These people don't know who that is. So you're not going to start there. So where do they start? They said, We're men that are just like you. They said, We preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, turn away from idols, they say, and turn to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all that in them is. What you're going to see when they talk to Gentiles is they establish the deity of God based on creation, based on the things that exist. Now, this is interesting to me. They take a different approach depending on who they're talking to. Do we have to do do that today? When we're talking to different people, we have to take a different approach? Can you give me some examples of that? Got to start where they are? Absolutely. Um, Can you give me a real-life practical example where you would start differently with one person versus another? Huh? So, Justin's been talking to a a young lady who is uh, an atheist. Are you going to start the same place with an atheist that you are a religious person? Of course not. Are you going to start the same place with a a person who believes the Bible as, say, a Muslim? You know, this is something that's really changed in our country in recent years, because when I was growing up, I'd never met a Muslim before. Now we have a very steady growing population of Muslims. Do you have any idea how you would begin to sit down and try to teach a Muslim the gospel? So you're going to start in a very different place with somebody like that. And what you see is Jesus does that, the apostles do that. They start in a different place depending on who they're talking to. All right, let's go to uh, verse number 16. It's kind of a mid-thought here, but he's preaching to them about the living God who made the heaven, the earth the sea, and all that in them is verse 16,
1: who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways.
0: OK, this is a very interesting phrase. He talks about nations in the past, and he said, "In bygone generations, that is, in the past, God allowed all nations." to walk in their own ways. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean in the past God said, you can do whatever you want to. Doesn't make any difference. Has God ever had that approach with man? Okay, that's not what it means. So what does he mean in the past that God allowed nations to walk in their own ways? Okay, okay. There was some free will involved. Uh, Certainly, uh, we've always had free will. I want you to look at a few verses here, and uh, let's see if we can flesh this out. I've got the verse at the top, Acts 14, 6, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Now, Acts 17, 29, and 30, this is coming up soon. This is when Paul is in Athens. He says, we ought not to think of the divine nature, that is God, Not not as gold or silver or stone or something shaped like art and man's devising. What's he saying? He's saying the God that created this world is not an idol. He's not made out of gold. He's not made out of rock. He says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Specifically talking about the Gentiles, he said, in generations gone by, there were some things, the King James says, that God winked at. The New King James says, he overlooked some things. It's an interesting thought. Now, the Jews had a written law from God, but with regard to the Gentiles, he's specifically talking about idolatry. What all is involved in this? I don't know. But he says there are some things that God overlooked. Now, I want you to think about the men of Nineveh. This is Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. Why do I cite them? Because Nineveh was filled with Gentiles, and they were wicked people. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, remember Jonah's a Jew, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This tells me that Gentiles couldn't just do whatever they wanted to do, It wasn't like, oh, you're a Gentile, God overlooks everything. You just live however you want to live. There was some standard the Gentiles had to live by. And in Nineveh, they had gotten so wicked, the Lord said, I'm going to wipe this place out. And he said, but I'm going to give them a chance. I'm going to send Jonah. I'm going to have Jonah preach to this city. And if they'll repent, I'll spare them. Did they have to become Jews? No, they didn't have to become Jews. But they repented in sackcloth and ashes. And you remember, Jonah wasn't happy about it because Jonah is a Jew and he hates Gentiles and he was chomping at the bits that, that God was going to destroy them. And so when they repented, remember Jonah went and pouted about it. I knew you'd spare them if they repented and he grumbles and then the Lord punishes Jonah for it. All right. Now look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since, And this is written specifically in relation to Gentiles. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, that is, God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, let's just stop there for a minute and ponder this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. What does that mean? God's invisible. One of the things the atheists say is, where's God? You can't see Him. I can't feel Him. I can't touch Him. I, you know, you can't know He's there. This says His invisible attributes are clearly seen. How? Being understood by the things that are made. What does that mean? Okay. Through nature. Through the laws of nature, you can figure some things out. In fact, notice in Acts 14, where does he begin? He starts talking to them about the real God, and he's going to say, God blessed you with the seasons. And I I want you to just ponder this question in its most basic, basic form. If you ask an atheist, where did this world come from? What will they say? Okay, Big Bang Theory is explosion and that's one. I've heard people talk about the uh, the string theory. Have you heard that one? Okay, Um, and all of these. So what if you ask them, where did the Big Bang come from? What will they say? Okay, we're trying to figure out where the Big Bang came from. Well, these uh, protons and these atoms that were involved in this explosion that caused the Big Bang or the string theory, where did that come from? You see, ultimately, something had to exist. You don't have nothing that all of a sudden becomes something. And the human mind can understand that. It doesn't take much Uh, intelligence to figure that out. Notice he says, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. The fact that something is here tells us that something has always been here. We can figure that out. You cannot get around that. If you take atheism and all its theories and you chop them down, chop them down, chop them down, you're going to get to that one basic elementary fact That no atheist can get around. And that is, whatever you have came from somewhere, which means either nothing gave rise to something, which they won't even accept that because it's so ridiculous, or something has always been here. Now, if something has always been here, where did it come from? How did it get here? Now you're saying that there is something or someone that is eternal. You begin to define God. Has the bell already rung? Am I I rambling past the bell? Okay, all right, very good. Um, So, I know the bell's just about to ring, but he says, by the things that are made, you know that a God exists. He says in the end of verse um, 20, so that they are without excuse. God has given us the intellect so that you can look and see that things exist. In fact, Uh, Next week, we may get into this a little bit deeper. But the fact that morality exists, the fact that matter exists, the fact that we can determine right and wrong, the fact that that exists, we can put two and two together, and we can determine that God has always existed to the degree that the Lord says they are without excuse. No one can stand on the day of judgment and have a reasonable excuse to say God doesn't exist.
1: He says there's no excuse for it. Okay, we'll stop there for tonight. Thank you for the participation.